word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, we celebrate International Women's Herstory Month with some influential writers and readers, one of whom connects poetry to music. We all went to London, and he recorded it at Abbey Road with the London Symphony. We'll also explore gender identity in the Asian Pacific community with a New York poet who's planning on returning to the Valley later this year. It's Christianity. That's where we get a lot of our very stringent gender roles like, oh, male, female from. But first, a young Native American woman recently won the State Poetry Out Loud recitation contest in Phoenix. Ganado High School student Sylvia Dale competed against nine other finalists at Burton Bar Central Library on March 7th. The readings were judged by a panel of Arizona writers, including the first Phoenix Youth Poet Laureate, Saria Taylor, who read one of her own poems called Bad Day Thoughts during an intermission between rounds. For more on the afternoon, here's my short recap of the event, including some reaction from Sylvia. Weekend afternoons on a warm day in the Valley are often spent outdoors. But for 10 Arizona high school finalists, they were inside the library competing in the state poetry out loud competition. The way I refer to it is it's the spelling bee, but with poetry. That's Anastasia Fryermuth with the Arizona Commission on the Arts. She's the state coordinator for the event. 
students have selected three poems from the National Poetry Out Loud anthology. They've memorized it. And they recite it. The poets chosen were diverse, from Gwendolyn Brooks to Shakespeare, to Gila River Indian community poet Natalie Diaz. One of her poems was recited by Sylvia Dale. Angels don't come to the reservation. Bats, maybe. Dale was crowned the winner after three rounds. I really like connected with her poem about the idea of Native Americans always being moved and looked down upon. I really love her poem and how it demonstrates that we are here and we are still going to move forward. She now moves on to Washington, D.C. for the national competition next month. Congratulations to Sylvia and all those who were state finalists. She'll compete in the national competition scheduled for next month in Washington, D.C. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. Count Me In. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can? Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Dr. Judith Wolf is an Arizona-based poet and educational psychologist. She'll be honored later this month with the Medallion of Merit by the Arizona Chapter of the National Society of Arts and Letters. She's the founder and director of Young Arts. She also is a poet who has deep connections with the music community. I caught up with her on the phone recently and began by asking her to talk about her work. Well, I've been writing poetry for years. Um, started writing rhyming things, and of course, that I've never published any rhyming things. Uh, so after a while, um, I heard some famous poets that just wrote a prose-type poetry, but short, and like E.E. E. Cummings and that sort of genre, and started changing my way of writing. And so now I write short poems. Um, I would say anywhere from three, four to 10, 12 lines, trying to have a punch at the end. I think women have been writing poetry for a long time. Emily Dickinson, certainly, even though she never got an acclaim for it till after she died, at least that's what I believe. Right. But there have been poets in history, women poets in history, for a very, very long time. So I'm, you know, I'm hoping sometime to fit into that. I'd right. have to be famous first, of course. <laughs> yeah, you know, speaking of Emily Dickinson, I am extremely fond of her work. I also write a fair mm-hmm. amount of short poetry. And the use of the dash is extremely important in her poems. Mm-hmm. Were you influenced by her as well in your own work? Yeah, because I like, well, I like the fact that she was female, but she also writes short poetry. And having taken literature courses, then you get the epic poems that go on and on and on. So it was very nice to be introduced to poets who wrote short poems with punch ending, which is what I like. 
Do you experiment um, at all with things like writing in all lowercase, for instance, like E.E. Cummings does, and taking out punctuation? I like to write without punctuation as much as I can, and I might capitalize the first letter of the poem, but I like to write in all lowercase when it, when it, when it works. Um, sometimes if there's a question in the middle of the poem, in the middle of the poem, then of course I'll have to do something different. But I would say the majority of my poetry has no punctuation. I like it to just sort of flow along. You've combined it with musicians. Uh, in fact, a, a Grammy award-winning musician. Can you tell me a little bit about that publication and the collaboration? I met Ken Fuchs through Joanne Folletta, who's the conductor of the Buffalo Philharmonic and was the Virginia Symphony at the time. And she knew that my main goal in publishing this poetry was to have music written for it. Uh, in order to be credible, you know, you have to be published. I, it, you can't really just hand a composer a, sh- a sheaf of paper. <laughs> and it, it looks much better if it's if it's got a binding on it. And so she put us together, and he read my poetry, and he liked it a lot. And so he picked out 12 poems, which he entitled Poems of Life. And he wrote a beautiful piece, which was premiered in Virginia. Um, and then he, which he had done in the past, he put that together with three other pieces that he had written one for piano, saxophone, um, I believe guitar, and then Homes of Life, which was sung by a countertenor. And we all went to London, and he recorded it at Abbey Road with the London Symphony Orchestra. Oh, wow. That must have and been that, quite a treat. And that, oh, it was, it was, it was an, an amazing experience. That's the CD that won the Grammy. Well, you are also about yeah. to be the recipient of uh, an award, and this is really exciting. Coming up on March the 22nd, uh, you'll be joined right. uh, by some fellow honorees. This is an award that comes from the Arizona chapter of the National Society of Arts and Letters, a Medallion of Merit. And so mm-hmm. what is it that they're celebrating exactly with this honor? They honor someone with this award who's done a lot for the arts and the community. I started, of course, Young Arts for Children. I'm on the um, Arizona Opera Board. I also am on the Metropolitan Opera Auditions. I'm president of that board. How does your background as an education psychologist work into the subject matter of your poetry? Do you find that it's very prevalent, or does it maybe only come up from time to time? I would say it's really not there at all. Uh, You know, I write about life experiences that I have, that other people have. Uh, My husband died four and a half years ago. There's a lot of grief, poetry about grief. As a matter of fact, when the Poems of Life was premiered in Virginia, someone came up to me at the intermission and said, oh, this is so wonderful and meaningful. Can we use it in our grief group? So there's a whole collection of that kind of work, but it's just kinds of experiences that I have had that are hopefully universal. 
Right, and that kind of leads to my final question, which is, what might be one value of poetry in the modern era? We've talked to plenty of people that say it's a great way, for instance, to give people self-confidence, just public speaking, for instance, which is a great fear for many people. Uh, Other people talk about, you know, emotional connections to others, a sense of identity for a, a group perhaps. But what do you think, based upon your own experience and sort of your travels through literature, uh, what do you think poetry does for people and what has it done for you? Well, I hope that that my poetry will help people validate their feelings. Because sometimes you have feelings and you think, oh, I'm crazy. Nobody thinks that. And then when you might see a poem that has that feeling in it, and then you could feel, you know, wow, uh, there's there's a connection there. I'm not crazy, or I'm you know I'm, I fit into the whole world, and um, it's okay to feel that way. Um, the other thing is because it's sung, which some of it has been sung, not enough, but some of it has been sung. It the the addition of the music makes it even more emotional. I feel I'm trying to get at emotion. Right. And then possibly even for those who, for whatever reason, feel that poetry is not, I don't know, um, accessible for them in some way. And maybe music then is a little bit more of an accessible art form for them to relate to. That, that would be. That would be. When I first thought about publishing this, I took my poems to a conductor who, friend of mine, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but I gave him this bunch of papers, and I said, I, I'm, would you just read these? And I want to see about having music, having some of them put to music. And he came back and he said to me, you know, I never liked poetry, but I like yours, <laughs> which I thought was a huge compliment. And he said, but, you know, if you want people to write music, you have to, you have to publish it. That's what I want to be accessible Yeah, good advice, too, I think, for other aspiring authors and poets. Well, Dr. Judith Wolf, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about your work, and we really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. I'm privileged to be talking to you. Dr. Wolf's poems from Songs of Life were part of Kenneth Fuchs 2019 Grammy-winning album, and later this year, she'll debut her next musical collaboration, Father's Song with composer Clint Berzoni. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. KJZZ is investigating your questions as part of a reporting project called Q&AZ. When the four peaks turn white in the winter, it's not only pretty to look at, it's also a good sign for our water reserves. You won't find any billboards along the Loop 101 through Scottsdale. That's because that city outlawed billboards in 1970. Some of ADOT's witty warnings are posted in other states, and others have been noticed by celebrities. If you're curious about our state, you can ask a question at qaz.kjzz.org. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. Senior.
Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. What you just heard is a portion of the 1996 song Across the Sea by Weezer. And according to Wikipedia, the band's Rivers Cuomo, quote, wrote it after receiving a fan letter from a young Japanese girl who asked him several personal questions. The song and the story is an element of inspiration for our next guest, Aaron Kong, who's a poet and performer with deep connections to the Valley. Kong is currently living in New York, but plans to move back to Phoenix later this year. I caught up with Erin via Skype recently, and I began our discussion by asking why she's headed back west. I grew up in Phoenix uh, for most of my life, and I think after leaving Phoenix, I really, truly began to appreciate the community back in Phoenix. Um... All of my friends and family are there. Uh, my partner's there. So I really, when I got to New York, I was like, oh, you know, this is something that I really value now that I didn't realize when I was there and very insulated. Um, I think that Phoenix is really beautiful in the sense that the art scene, the um, cultural scene is still very much developing and it's changing into something new every day. And being able to be part of that is something that is very important to me and something that I want to continue putting my energy into, Um, especially maybe two years ago. um, I co-founded an organization called Desert Diwata, which is specifically for um, the Asian Pacific Islander community in Arizona to have a space, you know, to be creative and expressive and to share in community. And that's something that I wanted to keep developing. And I went to New York in hopes that I would learn better how to organize and how to do that. And then I got here and I realized that a lot of the work that I wanted to learn and to continue developing was also in Phoenix. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the main reasons we wanted to talk to you was because we are championing women writers this month as a tie sort of into International Women's History Month, because I think women's letters are her story. We often say history, but I'll call it her story. And I, I wondered if you could talk briefly about identity. How does it affect your writing, for instance? Personally, I think that identity informs a lot of my writing. Obviously, I write about my own experiences, which are very specific, but it's not like when I start writing, I think, you know, oh, I'm going to write from the perspective of a Korean feminine presenting person, you know. So for me, I'm really interested in 
how identity and how memory is carried in the body in terms of physicality, in terms of emotions and our uh, emotional reactions to things. I think that, you know, especially as someone who was socialized and raised as a woman, there are certain environmental things that we have to be more conscious of, right? That men or people who identify as men don't necessarily have to deal with. And I think that that really presents itself in my writing um, in terms of anxieties of just occupying a certain kind of body, being resilient through that those anxieties, especially, you know, as an Asian woman, and being in an Asian woman's body, how that presents very specific for me, how that manifests in terms of how others treat me, how I'm treated in different spaces. And that kind of just comes <laughs> pouring out of my writing and my understanding of, you know, the more structural issues that surround a gendered, racialized body. Do you happen to have an example, maybe a short poem or something like that, that you have handy? that could kind of give us an example of that struggle? I think a lot about how historically, um, in terms of U.S. occupation of Asian countries like Korea and Vietnam and places, you know, that we've had wars in, how the young women and girls are treated there by occupied forces has translated into how Asian women are viewed in mainstream media, right? Which often comes from this weird sort of fetishizing, very predatory place. So this is a really short poem and it's called Just Turned 18 Only Applies to White Bitches. And it opens with a quote from the band Weezer and it's from one of their songs. And it's about a young Asian girl. So the quote is, I wonder what clothes you wear to school. I wonder how you decorate your room. I wonder how you touch yourself and curse myself for being across the sea. A, veal is a delicacy. Calves are taught life is a two foot by 2.5 foot wooden crate. Paradise is preparation. To preserve tenderness of the flesh, they are formula-fed and blindfolded before slaughter. B. They only asked how old I was when they already knew. So that's a really short one. Super fun. Uh <laughs> yeah, and I mean, talk about a cattle call, if you will. Uh, literally. <laughs> right. I'm stunned by that in a number of ways particularly because just listening to it, I can kind of see what you're describing. And then also, secondly, having lived in the Pacific for about 10 years on the island of Guam, which, mm -hmm. as you know, has been occupied by the U.S. military for quite some time, I saw this kind of behavior mm -hmm. pretty prevalently. There is a tendency in some ways for people to sort of stay on base and maybe they'll come off base with their families from time to time to do things. But there is a whole base culture for mm -hmm. folks, you know, who are couples and whatnot. And then you've got sort of the single guys crowd, right, who mm -hmm. are in the bars throughout the weekends. Mm -hmm. And as you describe the behavior of uh, fetishizing people, I mean, that's something that I, I just saw just about every weekend uh, that I was there for nearly a decade. And so that, mm -hmm. that really sort of hits home to me. I also sort of wonder, what can people who identify as binary, what should they learn about a gender landscape that is changing quickly for them, right? But maybe not quick enough for others. 
<laughs> right. I think that it's important to remember that a lot of our understanding of the gender binary, it comes from religion, comes from, I think about, you know, specifically in the West, in America, it's Christianity, right? Um, that's where we get a lot of our very stringent gender roles, like, oh, male, female from. Um, I know that in Korea, that was introduced when Confucianism and Buddhism came in, right? So I think it's important to understand that multiple genders, multiple expressions, understandings of gender exist in cultures all across the globe and have existed until different uh, powers came in and oppressed those people and put them into very, you know, what we understand today as male and female. Um, and I think it's also important to think about how Gender looks different for everyone, even for non-binary and gender-conforming people, right? Even though two people may say, oh, you know, we're non-binary, those expressions, those understandings of themselves are very different and are very personal. So I think it's important if you want to have a conversation uh, with someone who is non-binary or gender non-conforming to not make assumptions based on what you know from other people, right? Oh, good point, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As a poet, we have one example of what sort of moves you. I mean, you've talked to me kind of candidly about your personality. What forms of poetry do you enjoy writing? I really enjoy writing three verse poems. I, I come from a, a performance background, primarily in theater and musical theater. So I very much gravitated towards poetry because there wasn't structure. Um, form poems for me, I really appreciate people who know how to do it well. It's just personally not something I enjoy writing because I really like just being able to write sort of like in a free verse. I'm also interested even when tackling, I guess, more like academic poems writing in a way where the syllables sound good if you were to say them out loud or read them in your head, right? I think that's always fun. I always enjoy writing poems that I guess can be presented, right? That can be read out loud or to be said um, and then find a way to structure that on the page. So even if you don't hear someone's voice, it's still very clear where <laughs> all the breaks and all that is. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. What do you think the value of poetry is in 2020? I mean, is it something just as simple as giving someone the confidence to get up and speak in front of people? Um, you know, you mentioned reading and writing uh, there. Uh, what what do you think one value of poetry is in 2020? I think poetry is really valuable in the sense that it builds bridges. Um, it, I, I believe that change and structural change is, um, only possible through understanding and empathy, right? Understanding and empathy are the first steps for real social and structural change. And I think that poetry is a great catalyst for that. I think that even if you've never experienced certain things, um, if you read a poem by someone who has, or you hear a poem by someone who has, um, then you understand, oh, okay, you know, my world is bigger than I think it is. And I think there's uh, beautiful possibilities that come from that. I think also when you share your poetry and you share part of yourself, you're also opening up the world into a different avenue of understanding, right? And then from there, you know, not to sound too hippie-ish, but I think that that's truly where 
people can begin to understand each other and then make the world a better place from that. Well, I don't think there's anything necessarily hippie-ish about empathy building. Uh, (laughs) And that sort of sounds like what you're talking about there and and kind of boiled down to context. Aaron Kong is a writer formerly from Phoenix who's currently living in New York and hopes to return to the city. Aaron, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. Erin is currently working on her second manuscript and a poetry collaboration with a Phoenix writer and performer. And that'll do it for this episode of Word. You can find links and more information about our guests on our website at word.kjzz.org. Also, feel free to send us a comment or suggestion for a future show via the email link. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for listening. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org.